You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning. (laughs) That was terrible. Good morning. There we go. I just want to say thank you to this group of folks up here. I did a quick count. There's like 10 of them, which where I come from, that's not a worship team so much as it's a church plant. So I look forward to, no, I'm kidding. Love Todd Wright. Todd is one of my favorite people in the cosmos. And here's why. One of the highest compliments I can pay somebody, that brother loves Jesus. Whatever else you know about Todd, you know that guy loves Jesus. And so I'm thankful to get to be a part of what we're doing here in worship together. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church, and it's a thrill to be here. I bring you greetings from our brethren and sistren who are 8.8 miles due north of here that are worshiping as we speak. It's so neat that we, as three campuses, one church, get to do what we do. As a church, we spent the spring semester going through the book of 1 Peter. And the theme of 1 Peter essentially is, this is the grace of God. 1 Peter 5.12, this is the grace of God, stand firm in it. It's Peter's way of telling the early church, this is Christianity 101, and it is built on grace. It's built on grace, not law. So that's really sort of going to be our our big idea for the morning is we want to talk about how do we become or how do we develop more fully as a people who are characterized by giving grace and not law. It's my privilege really this morning to sort of get to be your tour guide, your your, uh, field trip leader. We're going to go to God's word and here's what we're going to do. We're going to dig. We're going to mine. Our objective when we go to God's word is to unearth these timeless principles these precious truths, these, these things that are, that are true for all people at all times in all places. And when we find those things from God's word, they are absolutely precious. They're to be cherished. They're to be kept. They're to be meditated on and ruminated on. My hope, my prayer, my fervent and eager expectation is that we will find a few of these timeless principles, understand them, and then apply them very specifically at the end of our time this morning. Now, the point of any preaching, the point of our passage, is that we would have proper perspective. This is what our Bible's trying to accomplish in us. It's reading us. It's trying to improve and affect our thinking, that we would think theologically about every circumstance, every environment. We would think theologically. A.W. Tozer was right when he said, what comes into your mind when you think about God, is the most important thing about you. I don't know if you know that about yourself, but what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, if that's true, and it is because Paul says so and Jesus says so, if it's true that what we think when we think about God is the most important thing about us, then we are well served to think rightly, to think theologically about every aspect of our walking around lives. That's our hope, that we will come to God's word and we will begin ever increasingly to think God's thoughts after him. 
So this morning, we are going to be in the book of Jude. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Jude. If you're not familiar with the book of Jude, I'll help you out. Just go to the maps, turn left, you'll be there in no time. It's a very small little book, Jude. There are no chapters in Jude, just a collection of verses. I'm going to begin reading in the book of Jude in verse 17. I'll invite you to follow along with me. Jude, verse 17. Jude writes this, but you must remember. You can see Jude writing and almost wanting to just put his hands on their shoulders, going, this is, this is so important. This, this is my one shot. This is the thing I would leave you with. This is what I want you to know. You must remember, beloved, that the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ they said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is God's word. This is written by Jude. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, but Jude won't tell you that. We know that from church history and from tradition. Jude simply identifies himself as the brother of James. Now, I'll just be totally transparent here. If my brother, if my big brother is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, I'm throwing that around every now and then, right? Like, oh, there's a long line at the checkout line. Mm, uh, my brother's the most high. Move. Not Jude. Jude adopts a perspective and a posture and a position of humility, simply addressing himself as the brother of James. Think that Peter and probably Paul had a lot of impact and influence on Jude. What he does is he writes sort of a synthesis and a summary of Peter and Paul. So we think that Jude is probably written sometime in the late 60s AD, probably written to the early church in the region of Israel and Palestine. Now Jude is writing for a very specific reason. He's confronting and combating error that is beginning to come into the church. Now I want you to just imagine, if you will, imagine a society in which people began to think that the spiritual realm is good, but the material physical realm is evil. It's bad. I want you to just try to imagine a society that was like that, a culture that believed that, that who you are on the inside is all that really matters. I know it's hard for you to imagine a, a country, a nation, or a culture that would think that, but who you are on the inside is all that really matters. It's the first fruits of what we call Gnosticism, this dangerous dualism that says who I am on the inside matters. I get to choose who or what I am. It was a problem 2,000 years ago. It's a challenge in our day as well. And Jude is writing to say, listen, this stuff is coming into the church. This idea of Gnosticism was beginning to filter into the church. And they're saying, look, spirit is good. Physical is bad. Jesus didn't really become a human because human is, is flesh and that's bad. He was just a spirit. He just seemed to be a dude. And Jude says, no, we do not support that in the least. Error is coming in. We must be aware of it and we must address it. This idea of Gnosticism, these apostates were beginning to sow error in the church. And these people were coming into the church saying, I have the answers. I have the secrets. But if you want those secrets, you have to come to me. 
And it was a way of hanging a chain around people's necks and exhibiting and exerting control over them. And it was an absolute beatdown and a burden. And Jude says, no, we must not do that. We must not allow that to happen. Jude's theme is that we are to fight. We are to contend for the faith. I always say that Jude is the book for the dude because it's about fighting, contending. Don't just be passive, be active. Fight, contend for the faith. It matters. So again, let me begin in verse 17 again and we'll sort of unpack this as we go along. Now, if you're the kind of person that takes notes in your Bible or on your smart device or on your big chief pad or your Etch-a-Sketch or whatever you have handy, write down next to verses 17 and 18, set expectations. And if you're not the kind of person that takes notes in your Bible, surprise, 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 today's the first day of the rest of your life. You should start. Take some notes in your Bible. If it's completely pressed and creased and never been written in or used, let's begin today. Set expectations. That's verses 17 and 18. Jude says this, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Now, Jude is saying, hey, look, this is what Peter said was going to happen. He said it in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said it in chapter 3. This is what Paul said in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. They said that people would come to the church and begin to sow error and discord. And Jude says, yowza, this is that. They said it was going to happen. Now it's happening. Don't be surprised. This is, this is normal. We live in a fallen world. Error and deviant doctrines are going to begin to come into the church. Don't be surprised. Set your expectations accordingly. All the stuff of the first part of the book of Jude, verses 4 through 16, are all the different varieties of error that are beginning to seep into the church. And the people that are showing these errors, he calls them scoffers. Now, now, your Bible might have a different word. It might say mockers. Mockers and scoffers are not just people who use a funny little voice to make fun of you. That's not what it is. It's a technical term. It's empakti. And it's a very serious term of a person that is described like this. One commentator puts it this way. Scoffers or mockers are those who despise morality and religion, who are arrogant and are godless libertines. They are characterized by their strong desires. That word is epithumia. Sometimes we'll use it for lust. They are characterized by their godless, ungodly desires. Now, strong desires in and of themselves are not evil. Jesus said, I strongly desire to have the Passover with you. Strong desires are not in and of themselves evil unless they are ungodly, and then they are dangerous. And these strong desires, these intense wantings, are the things that begin to come into the church and people begin to make decisions based on this. But I want it. But it feels like I think I should because I want it. And if that becomes your decision-making criteria, you're already in error and in danger. And Jude says this is what's going to happen to the church in the last times. Now, Jude does not mean before the apocalypse, as it were, he means in the final age before the coming of the king. Peter says the same thing in chapter four, that we are in the last days, which is the final age before the coming of the risen Lord Jesus to reign in Jerusalem. This is what's going to characterize the church. People are going to try to get in. So verses 17 and 18, set expectations. We should know this about our church. Verse 19, write the word divisions. Verse 19, 
It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Incidentally, if you ever hear your Bible describe you as worldly and devoid of the Spirit, that's very bad news. What Jude is saying is the people that are sowing this discord and this error are not believers. They may think they are. They may look like it. They may talk like it. They may even dress like it. But they're not believers. Jude wants us to be reminded that the litmus test of a Christian is, are they indwelled and sealed by the Spirit of God? That's the test. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, Holy Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This is how you know if someone is a Christian. Are they indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Now, the trouble is, it's difficult to tell. Because there are people that are probably pretty proficient at Bible Jeopardy, can tell you all 12 apostles and the minor prophets, but don't know Jesus. So it's hard to tell. This is why I'm grateful for Bethel, that we have a plurality of elders, under shepherds, keeping watch care over the flock of the Lord, who prayerfully discern and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. They may feel right, but it's not truth. It's not right. And they prayerfully discern in a plurality of leadership error, and they divide against that. When we see people coming in who are sowing discord, it is never of the Spirit. Jude says they are of the world. The Holy Spirit of God who indwells every believer is never going to say to this section, I want you to believe this, and to this section, I want you to believe that, and to be in conflict and to create isms and schisms. Never of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit teaches all. So Jude says, be aware of divisions. When they begin to arise, you, you go all Barney Fife. You, you nip it. Nip it in the bud. Don't even let it get started. So set expectations. Verse 19 is divisions. Now, Verses 20 to 21, let's talk about prevention. Prevention, that's the word I want you to write there next to your, in your margin. Prevention, verses 20 to 21. This is how we proactively prepare against error and the apostates coming into our midst. Prevention. Verse 20 and 21. But you, beloved, now that's interesting. He's called them beloved for the second time. Agapetoi. The, 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 I love you so much. They're his favorite. If Jude had a refrigerator, all of their pictures would have been on it. He loves them. They're, they're, he may not have even known them. But there's this greatest common denominator that Jude knows that he is writing to an eternal people. That now, 2,000 years later, Jude is still playing Frogger with all these people somewhere in heaven or whatever it is that they're doing there. He knows them and will always know them for all eternity. But you, beloved... Notice the contrast. No, no, you don't be characterized by error and deviation, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Jew is going to address his readers. He's going to say, listen, friends, beloved, most cherished, this is like the most important thing I can say to you. Now, he's going to give them one imperative, now, I know this is about to get a little bit geeky and a little bit greeky, and I'm going to get all grammatical here. Is that a word? No, no. This matters. One imperative modified by three adverbial participles. Stay with me. One instruction. That's all he's doing. Just one. Here's prevention. You know what the prevention is? 
Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the imperative, modified by three things. So it could probably read like this. Keep yourselves in the love of God by building yourself up in your most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, by eagerly expecting the return of Christ. Beloved, keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, that sounds a little bit vague. How do we, how do we keep myself in the love of God? I'm glad you asked, Jude says. First of all, by building yourself up in your most holy faith. What does that mean? It means telling ourselves, reminding ourselves what we know to be true, what we know to be truth, the things of God's word that read us, those timeless principles, those powerful truths that we know are true. We remind ourselves, we preach sermons to our souls and say, this is truth. Regardless of how I feel or regardless of how it seems, I do not, I will not, I must not interpret God by my circumstances, I will interpret God by his word. And I am built up in my most holy faith. That's how we do that for one another. And we're kept in the love of God. Secondly, by praying in the Holy Spirit. Those that were sowing error and discord were devoid of the spirit. They were not believers. But a Christian is characterized by communion with the spirit. That's what it means to be a Christian, that you are indwelled by the spirit, which begs the question, how long has it been since you've heard his voice? Oh, not, not audibly necessarily, but how long has it been since you've gone to God's word in the spirit by the name of Jesus and heard him speak? How long has it been since he's heard you? You are an eternal being, permanently sealed by the third member of the Godhead Trinity. Be characterized by praying in the spirit. And you know what will happen? You will be kept in the love of God. Thirdly, by eagerly expecting the return of Christ. We're to be characterized by hope. Did you know that you are defined by the day you live for? If you're just working for the weekend and that's it, ah. But if you were characterized by everyday thinking, oh, what if it's today? That the guy on the white horse busts through the clouds whose eyes are like blazing fire and he sets up the kingdom. What if that's today? We're to be characterized by eager expectation and anticipation of the return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Every day, to be reminded of that, his return will be a mercy to those who believe. It'll also be judgment, Jude says, to those that did not believe. Now remember, Jude addresses this to the beloved, to the believers, to all the church, not just to the super saints or the spiritual or the leaders or the pastors or preachers or teachers or nursery workers or elders or deacons. It's to everybody. All of us are to keep ourselves in the love of God by being built up in our faith, by praying in the spirit, by eagerly expecting the return of Jesus. That's how we keep ourselves in the love of God. That's how we prevent error from coming into our midst. Do you see? I love the fact that it's for every believer and every single believer has a responsibility to contribute to the corporate building of the faith. A guy named Gene Green puts it this way. Community is the soil where faith grows. Of course, his name is Gene Green. I had to double check that, make sure it wasn't Mr. Green Jeans. It's not, it's Gene Green. Community is the faith, or sorry, is the soil where faith grows. It happens here among other believers. And if you try to build up your faith and pray in the Spirit and eagerly expect Christ all by yourself, your faith will wither and it will die. It happens in community. Now, I know that that's a whole lot of, of, of grammar, 
but it's so crucially important for what Jude is trying to get across. The word is to keep, tereo. It is to, to, to guard it. And this presents this healthy and holy tension in Christianity. See, Jude starts his letter by saying, church, those of you that are kept by God for Jesus, you are kept, so keep yourselves. It's this wonderful, healthy, holy tension. Is it God or is it me? Uh Uh-huh. But there's an order. There's a primacy. We say this all the time. The imperative is always preceded by the indicative. Let me explain. Anytime your Bible tells you to do something, it is always and only after it tells you what God has already done. The imperative is always preceded by the indicative. God has done something, therefore do this. You are kept by God for Jesus, so keep yourselves. It's both and. What that gives us is a hope, gives us a confidence, gives us a certainty that I am kept, and so I keep myself. What am I to do? I am to build myself up in faith. I am to pray in the Spirit. I am to eagerly expect the return of Christ. Now, we've got set expectations. We've got divisions. We've got prevention. How do we stave off error? Jude's a good pastor. He knows that there are also some in the church already that have succumbed and that are in error. So right next to verses 22 and 23, cure. And we know that prevention is always better than cure, but for those that are already beginning to slip, already beginning to slide, already beginning to fall away, this is what he says in verses 22 and 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Having told them what the dangers are and how to prevent them, he's now going to address, but what do you do with people who are already beginning to be characterized by ungodly, worldly desires? And they want to sow that sort of mentality in the church. What do you do? This is what Jude says. You tell them what a loser they are, how they're wrong, how disappointed in them you are, and how awful they are as a person. That's what you do. Oh, wait, that's not in the Bible. It's what all of us want to do instinctively because we still do not default to grace. We are to give grace, not law. We are to give mercy, not law. See, grace is so violently different than the way our society normatively operates. We still functionally, many of us, operate under karma. Now, we know we would never say we believe in karma, but Most of us at some level still believe that what goes around comes around, right? But that's not biblical. Grace says what goes around has come around to the cross of Christ. And I do not get what I deserve. He did. That's a much better system than karma. When people are sliding, when people are slipping, show mercy. Do not give them what you think they deserve. Show mercy, not rebuke or harsh correction or bludgeoning them. Show them kindness, lest you and I forget. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, have you forgotten? It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not God enumerating all of the ways that I've blown it. Ah, no, he's good, he's kind, he's patient. Show them mercy. He says to snatch some from the fire. Now, Jude is using some Old Testament language. He's referencing Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2, where God tells Satan, oh no, Satan, I have snatched Jerusalem from the fire. I am rescuing them. 
Jude says, sometimes we have to be very truthful, always with love, always with grace, but for some that are beginning to really aggressively fall away, we do not want them to receive judgment. We want to tell them the truth, but speak it in grace and love. Snatch them from the fire. The church has to respond, always seeking to restore, never to tear down. We want to lift people up to restore them. They are eternal beings. We want to walk with them in community back to a pattern of wellness and wholeness and glory and grace. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. What is Jude talking about here? Well, he's saying, be careful when you confront error. Do not dwell in the doubt or the discouragement of another for too long or it will begin to cloud your thinking. You must exercise discernment and caution. Peering too long into their, into their error has a way of messing up our thinking. We want to go back to God's word. We want to think his thoughts after him. So what are we supposed to take away from this passage? What are some timeless truths, some precious principles? Well, just remember our big idea is that we want to be a people who give grace, not law. John Owen, one of my favorite theologians, John Owen puts it this way. He who carries his sin up Mount Sinai, in other words, to the law, will only have it strengthened. He who carries his sin to the cross will see it lose its power. That's what Paul said in Romans 7. The more I think about the law, the more I want to break it. Don't think about a tree. <laughs> there it is. The more you think about the rules, the more you want to break them. That's our flesh. That's our depravity. That's the gravity of depravity. So don't carry it up Mount Sinai. Carry it to the cross and you will see your sin lose its legs. So very quickly, let me give you three biblical principles, some timeless truths from this passage. Number one, don't give people what you think they deserve. <laughs> Show mercy. Now clearly, Scripture tells us over and over again that we are to make discerning judgments, evaluations, judgments about all things, 1 Corinthians 2.15. We see the world through God's eyes. We make discerning judgments, but it is never our role to hand out punishment. It's not our role. Show mercy, show kindness, show grace, because you have received grace and mercy. We always want to restore. Give grace, not law. When someone messes up, it's not about giving them the rule book. Tell them what's already been done for them. Secondly, choose to see people as beloved. Choose to see people as beloved. Have a well-reasoned concern for their souls. That's what love is having a well-reasoned concern for their souls. Notice it's not just feelings. It's a well-reasoned concern for their souls. Remembering, being reminded that the people in these blue chairs, God loves them as much as he loves his own son, Jesus. Did you know that? When you came in this morning, did it occur to you that the people sitting next to you, God loves them as much as he loves his own son, Jesus. And we have the opportunity, the privilege, the prerogative, and the mandate to view them through that lens of grace. We might not agree. We may not even like one another from time to time, but love covers a multitude of sin. This means viewing people with worth, that they are worth it. Their value as a human being is worth more than whatever oops they might have just done. They're worth it. See them through the lens of grace. It's esteeming them, 
giving them the benefit of the doubt, assuming the best about people rather than assuming the worst about people. So when she walks by you again and doesn't say hello and you get all offended, oh my gosh, she did it again. Third time at women's Bible study, she walked by, didn't even see me. I cannot stand her. I'm gonna go on Facebook and just... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe she's having a low blood pressure moment and literally has tunnel vision and is just trying to get to a chair. By default, choose to give people the benefit of the doubt. Assume the best about them, and maybe you're wrong. That's okay. But by default, give them the benefit of the doubt. Assume the best about them. Third principle, we are to create safe havens where people are rescued, equipped, and unleashed. This is what Jude says I want you to do, church. Create a safe haven, safe port in the storm of society where people are rescued, they are equipped, and they are unleashed. I've heard people say that the church is supposed to be like a hospital. Okay, that's helpful, but it's not far enough. The business of the church is transformations. It's not simply fixing people's problems, because we can't. What we can do is be the hands and feet of the Lord Jesus, tell the truth, and have people's lives be transformed, rescuing them, equipping them, and unleashing them. That's the business of the church, to create those sorts of safe havens, not where people walk in and instantly feel guilty about who they are and what they've done. No, but we are to be diligent and intentional about loving them and leading them into a growing relationship with Jesus, and that'll never, ever happen if we simply tell them all the ways they're wrong, or worse, how they're not like us. No, we create safe havens where they are rescued, equipped, and unleashed. Now, this is the timeless truths, the, the precious principles that Jude wants to give to the church. But now, I want to take those gems, those timeless, eternal principles, and I want to come down the funnel a little bit more of applicability. I want to move this right into our home. How can we take those principles and really apply them to our marriages? Now, some of you in here are not married. doesn't matter. This applies to you too. Whether you are married, divorced, widow, widower, some high school student on the hunt, whatever it is, this applies to you because this has to do with how we relate to one another, relating to the redeemed. How do these principles now translate to our home? We are to give grace, not law, even in our marriages, even with our spouses? What does it look like to take Jude's truth from his little book and to fight or contend for the faith of my spouse rather than simply fighting to the face of my spouse? Can I even fight with my spouse? Is there a way to do that? How do these timeless truths, these precious principles from the book of Jude, how do they apply to our, to our, our homes and our marriages? Let me go ahead and get this out of the way. The reality is that you and your spouse are almost always going to be on different pages spiritually. Let me just normalize that. This is just reality. You are very, very rarely, if ever, going to be in perfect lockstep. Let me just obliterate the myth that when you get married and you're Christians, that you're always going to be totally finger-locked, walking in perfect bliss, singing Amazing Grace with unicorns and rainbows, perfect harmony and spiritual bliss right up to the gates of Zion. Maybe that happened, but probably not. There are times when husbands simply cannot lead spiritually. They may not even want to. There are times when wives cannot follow spiritually 
and they may not even want to. Let me just normalize that and say that's part of the world in which we live. God knows that. So how do we fight for the faith of our spouse when those things are happening? The answer is to give grace, not law. Always reminded of a couple named Danny and Liz. This is a, another church a long time ago. Danny and Liz came and they sat down and they were in crisis. Two volcanoes side by side about to blow. I said, well, what, what's going on? Tell me what's happened. They said, we, we are, we're in deep trouble here. I said, well, tell me what's going on. And, and Danny said, I've made up my mind that I want a bass boat. And I want it. And I really, really want it. And I was at work the other day, and it occurred to me that what I'm missing is a bass boat. Like, that's it. That's the thing that's going to complete me is a bass boat. But I knew she wouldn't let me have it. She never lets me have what I want. So I got home, and it didn't go well. We got in a fight. And I looked at Liz, and I said, well, well what, what happened? She said, he walked in the door, and he said, I've made up my mind. I'm getting a bass boat, and there's nothing you can do about it. I said, awesome. How did that make you feel, Liz? And she said, not so great. What do we do? This is what I told him. Get the boat. Yeah, they looked at me that way too. To get the boat. Yeah, you can't afford it. Yeah, it's going to put you in debt for years, and we don't agree with that, but I can fix a long-term debt problem. We'll work it through. I'll put you in front of Dave Ramsey for 10 years if I have to. We can fix a debt problem. What I can't fix in any way short-term is a long-term simmering resentment and bitterness. So get the boat. I said, let me guess, Danny. Here's what happened. You left work, and the whole way home, you had a fight with her, but she wasn't a part of it, right? He's like, oh, yeah. I said, how'd that go? He said, oh, I killed it. I mean, I was just, and every time she would respond, I said, let me say, she would respond with no, and that just made you want it more, right? He goes, yeah, yeah. And I said, now you remember she was not actually there? <clears throat> you had the whole fight with her, and then you walked in and said, I'm gonna do this, and there's nothing you can do about it. I said, right. I said, now, let me ask you, what if this had happened? What if you got home and said, I'm gonna do all this, Nothing you can do about it. What if Liz would have said, okay. I don't know how we're going to make it work, but I trust you. You're my husband, and I love you, and I know that you love me. And if this is something you have prayerfully considered, and you have absolutely sought the wise counsel of others, and you are convinced that this is God's plan for our life, then I am looking forward to spending time with our family on the water. Go right ahead. I'm all for you. I said, now, if she would have said that, what would you have done? Would you have gotten the boat? Oh, no way, man. No way. Right. Give grace, not law. Grace diffuses. Show mercy. Choose to see one another as beloved. This is how it happens in our homes. We keep ourselves in the love of God. We are to fight for one another's faith. We build ourselves up. I build up my spouse, my spouse in her most holy faith. I tell her what is true. Psalm 42, Psalm 43. Why are you so downcast? Oh, my soul. Oh, my spouse. This is what we know to be true. There is a God. He has sent his son. He has redeemed us. We're okay. 
This is what we know to be true. And I fight for the faith of my spouse by telling her the truth, building us up in most holy faith. By praying in the spirit. This is how I fight for my spouse's faith. We pray in the spirit. I don't know if you know this, but when you and your spouse were married, two became one. Malachi 2.15 says there is a bond, there is a weld, there is a solder, that two become one. And you know what that bond is, that solder is? It is the spirit of God himself. The third member of the Godhead Trinity himself welds you two into one. Pray in the spirit together. That's how you keep yourselves in the love of God. Hold hands, pray out loud with your eyes open. Oh man, that's weird. Yeah. Suck it up, cupcake. Do it anyway. Because he's worth it. Because she's worth it. That's how you keep yourself in the love of God, by building yourselves up in faith, by praying together in the spirit, by eagerly expecting the return of Christ. Oh, honey, things are bad. This is weird, but you know what? Clouds are about to buff, and there's going to be a big white horse with the king of kings on it. He's coming. Perspective. You keep yourselves in the love of God when you do that. You give grace not law. We create safe havens for one another. We remove any jagged rocks in the port where he or she might not feel safe. The person to whom we've been entrusted, we are to be the safest person in the world for. Regardless of what's going on, they must have access to come to us and say, I feel safe here. I've messed up again and again and again, but at least with you, you're my safe haven. And then here's the really important one. Grace stops flooding. A guy named Dr. John Gottman in Seattle has done an enormous amount of research on this. There is a, a thing that happens in a marriage relationship called flooding. Flooding is the marriage killer. He's done research, and 96% of the time that couples fight, 96, now I'm not really good at math, but that seems like a pretty high percentage. 96% of the time that couples fight, and it's all about law, it's all about reading people the right act. 96% of the time, even if what one person is saying to the other is true and correct and accurate, 96% of the time, those fights end unresolved with one or both not feeling completely resolved and at peace. There is this thing that happens called flooding and Gottman describes it like this. Let's say this is your brain. This is your brain on fist. Are you tracking with me? This is really helpful. Whether you're in high school, whether you've been married 50 years, this is your brain. This is your brain on fist. At the front of your brain, right up here, right up here, this is what's called the prefrontal cortex. In your brain, this is how God has made us. This is where all of the logical, rational thinking, decision-making processes happen. It's right up here. Now, God is pretty clever. You may know this. But right behind the prefrontal cortex, he's packed this little nugget behind the prefrontal cortex. All reasoning, decision-making processes are up here. But behind it is this little nugget. It's called the amygdala. The amygdala is like your passion center, your temper center, your emotion center. This is where a fight, flight, or freeze occurs is in the amygdala. The thing that fires like crazy when you're having all kinds of wonky dreams, it's the amygdala that's just having a heyday in your brain while you're asleep. It's the amygdala makes us go crazy, makes us have all sorts of emotional outbursts. It's the amygdala, but it's behind the prefrontal cortex. Next to the amygdala, keep tracking with me, is the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is that part of your brain that controls breathing and heart rate and blood pressure and body temperature. Now, here's good news. God's designed us so that the prefrontal cortex is right up here. 
Behind them is the amygdala and the hypothalamus. And all's good. All's fine. Until you and your spouse get into conflict <laughs> and the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride in. Here's what happens. There are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, Gottman says, and if any one of them or any of them in combination hits the prefrontal cortex four times, you know what happens? Boom! It just blows right off. It's just gone. Like a toupee in a hurricane, whoop, it's gone. And you, this thing is now exposed. The, the amygdala is firing like crazy. It's all emotion. It's all reaction. It's all passion. It's not real rational. It's blown off. Only takes four times. Men get overwhelmed even quicker. It happens for men in about 20 microns, Gottman says. Women in about 30 microns. It happens faster. Men are more quickly overwhelmed by marital conflict than women. God made us this way because we can't hack it. For a man, he gets dinged four times in the prefrontal cortex, poof, he's gone. And it's literally like having a shell shock experience. You just can't function. You're just wanting to escape or fight or get aggressive or anything. What are those four horsemen of the apocalypse? The first one is criticism. Sometimes when there's a conflict, you can make a complaint. A complaint works like this. You did X. It made me feel Y. I wish you would now Z. That's a complaint. That's okay. That's healthy conflict. That's, that's good for marriages. You did this. It made me feel like this. I wish you would this. It's based on the event. But a criticism, a criticism makes it about the person. A criticism says, you always... You never. What is wrong with you? That's a criticism. And when you've heard your spouse say, you always or you never or what is wrong with you or something like that, about four times, poof, you're flooded. And flooding is the marriage killer. The next one is contempt, where you begin to adopt an air of superiority against your spouse. And you find yourself saying things like this, oh, you paid someone to wash your car again. I guess you're too good to wash your own car. She goes, oh, and you took your shirts to the dry cleaners again. I guess you're too good to do your own laundry. <gasps> now there's contempt where you're saying that you're better than your spouse. That's not, it's not helpful. It's, it's flooding. When you hear that fourth time, boom, this happens. And now you're in crisis. And this is not going to be resolved well. Third one is defensiveness where you play the part of the victim and you transfer all the guilt of the world onto your spouse. And it never works, never helps. It just escalates and it elevates. And the blood pressure continues to go. The fourth horseman of the apocalypse is stonewalling, where you just shut down and you go to your pretty, pretty pain cave and you just get away from everything possible. And the fourth time your spouse does that to you, you blow off. It's just, it's over. And once this has happened, flooding is in, is in is in reality, and the marriage is in deep, deep crisis. So I know this is going to be a shock to most of you. I have a slight talking problem. It's true. We have a watchword at our house. When I'm in the middle of a conversation with my spouse, I'll look over, and she's just doing this. And I'll go, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Are you, are you flooded? Did I, did I, she's like an hour ago. She's like, I've been watching a movie in my head. You know, the one with Emma Thompson? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like for an hour. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I, and we, that's our safe word. And I'm so sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to flood you. I didn't, I, I'm so sorry. You're, you're, no, no, no. You're worth more than that to me. Grace stops the flooding. Maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about, but flooding happens very quickly. 
When a man gets flooded, his blood pressure goes up and his blood pressure will not go back down until he feels like he has retaliated. This is how God made us. So a man gets flooded. All he's thinking about now is he's searching for that perfect one-liner to give it back to his wife. And until he retaliates or feels like he's retaliated, he won't simmer down. She's not like that. A woman's blood pressure will go right back down after she's flooded. Praise God. But us guys, we have to have some time. We have to go walk around the backyard and punch the fence or something. Women, you need to know this. Don't allow your husband to flood. Men, you need to know this. Don't allow your wives to flood. Give grace, not law. It is grace that stops the flooding. See, here's the deal. Jesus had every right to be angry, but he didn't. He wasn't. He isn't. Jesus has already given grace. There is no sin nor broken relationship beyond his reach. Did you know that? There is nothing that your spouse can do that is beyond his mercy. There is nothing that you will ever discover about your spouse that he has not already paid for. Did you know that? Your marriage, no matter what level of crisis it is, is not beyond his reach, not beyond his grace, not beyond his mercy, and he wants it to be whole. He wants it to be a showcase for his goodness and glory and grace. So much so that he sends the Holy Spirit of God himself to be the bond between you. When it happens and when he does the thing again, when she says the thing again, you know what you do? You give grace, not law. You literally, in your mind, imagine taking that thing, that, that word, whatever it was, and you throw it violently against the cross of Christ, and it is finished. You let it go, because it's already been paid for. Nothing your spouse, your dating partner, nothing they will ever do is beyond the grace of Christ and his finished work on the cross. So you give grace, not law. You show mercy. You don't give people what you think they deserve. You don't give your wife, you don't give your husband what you think they deserve. You show them kindness. You snatch some from the fire. Sometimes some of your spouses are in deep distress and they're slipping away and they're beginning to follow their own strong, ungodly desires. You speak the truth in love, never alone, always in community. We at this church, all campuses, we want to partner with you. We want to come alongside you. We want to walk with you through these seasons Please don't go it alone. See, I told you a little bit of a half-truth earlier. Story about Danny and Liz. Well, it wasn't really Danny and Liz. That's actually mine and my wife's middle names. It was us. And I came home one day and I burst through the door and I said, I'm gonna buy, and it wasn't a bass boat. It's none of your business. <laughs> and there's nothing you can do about it. And I was ready. I mean, I was, come on. And she said, okay. That's what you think is best. You've talked to your buddy Dave and Chris and Tony and you prayerfully discern that that's what's best for our family. Then I trust you. I love you. I know you'll only and always do what's best for our family. Oh, man. <laughs> Never did get it. She changed our whole marriage. Completely altered the trajectory of our married life because she gave grace and not law. If she'd have given one little bit of pushback and told me why it was a bad idea, we'd have done it and I'd probably be a single man today. She gave grace, not law. Why? Because she had received grace already. It is finished. Some of you are here this morning. And maybe you're here and you don't know this Jesus. You know a whole lot about him. 
but you've never truly been the recipient of grace and mercy, this morning I invite you to believe. Not to explain it away. You may not like it. You may not understand it. You may not even agree with all of it, but this is what we believe, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He lived a perfect life, fulfilling the demands of the law, that is perfection, and the wages of sin, that is death. And he offers to take all of my jacked upness, all of my depravity, all of my sin, and give me in exchange all of his righteousness. And the reality and the power of that is that now there is nothing that can ever come against me that I can't throw at the cross. Because I've received grace, I can now give grace. I can now give mercy. And that's transformative. If you've never received that, I invite you to believe. Not will you believe one day on your terms. Do you believe this morning for the first time perhaps ever? Do you believe? I don't understand, but the penny just dropped. And yes, I believe. I invite you to talk with someone that you know, love, and trust. One of the staff, one of the elders, deacons, leaders at this church, at this campus. For the rest of you, you've been a Christian since Noah was a boy. Good, good. Let me remind you of this Jesus, who he is and what he has done. He is a king that cares. He is a brother that is proud, and he's a champion that died, and he has given grace, not law. May we live in kind. Give grace, not law. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for who you are, for what you have done. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Father, I pray, anyone in this room who does not know your son, Jesus, who is not indwelled by your spirit, would you move irresistibly by grace to lead them into a saving knowledge of your son? Would you give them courage and joy and enthusiasm to speak with someone they know and love and trust about that? For the rest of us, Father, would you help us? Would you give us wisdom, more grace, more mercy to create safe havens in our home that we would be characterized as a people who give grace not law, who give our spouses the benefit of the doubt, who assume the best about them, who fight and contend for their faith. God, may it be exactly as I have prayed or even better because you are good and we can trust you. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.